Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, January 28th, 2014. Ah, I'm kind of in one of those cycles where it feels like the faster I go, the more behind her I get. If you've noticed, I've been sort of silent on Twitter and Facebook. I, I've noticed that um, being productive and being on Facebook and Twitter are two mutually exclusive concepts sometimes. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we slow down and stop and compare what God's Word says in context to the things that people are saying that God's Word says. Um, Part of what we do here definitely is discernment, but the other part is uh, trying to inductively teach you uh, basic good hermeneutic skills. Sometimes hermeneutics, it's, it's as simple as context, context, context. Other times... Yeah, it's it's a little bit more than that, and so um, today's episode, in fact, I you know you're going to be able to tell what the theme is immediately because the name of today's episode is misadventures in bad hermeneutics, misadventures in bad hermeneutics, and so we've got great examples of bad hum- hermeneutics for you to uh, take a look at and uh, and listen to today as we try to untangle it and point out what the problem is. You know, And uh, the idea is I want to go a little deeper than context, 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 although we'll, we'll definitely see a lot of uh, bad contextual things going on here. But talk about misapplied texts and uh, not paying attention at all to what a passage actually says. And uh, one of the guys I'm going to be uh, reviewing, uh, you know, a segment from is somebody I had never heard of until now and what's funny is is that um uh, Paula Coyle had uh, posted a link to some of these videos that uh, they're available at uh, YouTube she posted them on my Facebook wall and um the guy's name is Ray Vanderlan and uh, apparently he's done a series of videos like uh you walk like Jesus or something like that. And uh, some of the listeners have chimed in and said, yeah, this is the guy who Rob Bell early on was saying he was his rabbi. So he was <laughs> rabbi to Rob, rabbi Rob Bell. Say that 10 times fast. 
and uh, which kind of explains where the problem is. Um, yeah, it. Uh, wow, uh, at least one of the problems when it comes to Rob Bell. So we're going to actually be taking a look at uh, a portion of a video called "When the Rabbi Says Go." That's uh, what we're going to be doing. In fact, I'm telling you what we're going to be doing and not even doing it in order. All right, so let's. <laughs> Get to it, Chris. Why don't you tell us what you're going to talk about on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith? Yes, it's called Misadventures in uh, Bad Hermeneutics, and uh, so we have a um, we have a Perry Noble update. Uh huh. Now, did you know that uh, John three sixteen is now one of the go to passages in the seeker driven movement to motivate people to tithe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's uh, we're, so. You know, from time to time, I mention this on Facebook and Twitter that uh, that over and again, I'm finding seeker-driven guys who are using John three sixteen as uh, as an impetus to discuss the importance of tithing, uh, which, by the way, is not a, a command that's binding on the New Testament. Uh, New Testament believers, uh, New Testament believers are not under the uh, Mosaic covenant. They're not under that uh, uh, that the, that law. And uh, and so to uh, demand that Christians tithe, well, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's absolutely a twisting of God's word. And you sit there and go, well, how's my pastor to, supposed to be uh, paid? It's real simple. Uh, you, you give them whatever is in your heart to give. It's just that simple. And, and you know, there is no biblical command that tells you you must, as a Christian, give 10% of the gross annual income to your church. Now, that being said, keep this in mind: is that ten percent is the uh, is the amount that that Abraham gave um, the man of faith without any command from God. So you know, there's good biblical precedent for the tithe, but um, under no circumstances should you feel like you are obligated by God to give minimally ten percent of your income. Otherwise, you are not worthy. God hates you, and and calamity is going to. Uh, Come and stalk you and 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 find you and then take you back behind a a building and beat you up. Um, you know, kind of. You know, God is not a mafioso, and and so the whole idea that uh, Robert Morris, what he teaches in in his book, um, is that uh, your money is cursed until you redeem it with the tithe. And of course, if you don't redeem it and you start spending that cursed money, oh, oh, oh bad things are going to happen to you. Which basically turns God into, uh, you know, a, a really bad. Uh, he, a mafioso type person, you know, who basically says, "Yeah, you know, I have your best interest in mind. You know, I just need to shake it down for ten percent, because you know, I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to you. You know what I mean? You know, you know Rocky over here. You know, yeah, you, you know, Rocky. You don't want nothing bad to happen to this guy, do you? No, no, nothing bad. You know, <laughs> so that yeah. You know, and people tell me that um, <clears throat> my uh, accents here are horrifyingly bad, and I agree, they are. But um, the point is, is that uh, no, your money's not cursed until you give a tithe. God loves a cheerf- cheerful giver. We give out of you know basically not obligation we give out of service to our neighbor and and uh, and so the idea here is is that you're free to give 10% you're free to give 5% you're free to give 25% you're free to give 50% it god loves a cheerful giver don't you know and and don't give to get that's you know man 
<laughs> you give because you've been given to. I think that's the, the right way to put it. And I think that's what the Perry Noble's attempting to get at here in this message we're going to be, this little, this little tiny video we're going to be listening to. That's what he's trying to get at, is this idea that uh, we give because God has given to us. But it really comes off badly, and he's in, engaging in bad hermeneutics. So we have that to take a look at. Um, I have a, uh, a David Crank update, um, and, uh, and then we'll take a break. When we come back from the uh, break, we're going to take a listen to When the Rabbi Says Go. When the Rabbi Says Go, we'll take, take a listen to that and, uh, and kind of unpack, you know, hermeneutically what the problem is going on there. And then time permitting, time permitting, there is um, a, a relevant church, uh, relevant magazine has put out a, a, an article that uh, people are linking to and sending to me on Facebook and Twitter and have emailed it to me entitled Five Really Bad Reasons to Leave Your Church. We'll take a quick look at that, although I've responded uh, to this, you know, long, long ago, um, you know, but it, long before it was ever written, I've already responded to it because this is a constant, constant uh, thing that we hear in the Seeker Driven Movement. And then in hour number two, we're going to go to LCBC out there in Pennsylvania and uh, listen to their uh, uh, week one of their sermon series entitled Rock Notes, Rock Notes. And uh, so that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. Uh, we've got um, a lot of ground to cover. Uh, fuzzy bunny slippers, by the way, do enhance your listener experience if you're looking for a way to enhance your experience. We're, we're always about uh, enhancing um, you know, listener experiences. So with that, we're ready to dive into the program proper. And we're going to start off with our Perry Noble update. Here we go. It really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. That's right. That's our uh, Perry Noble update with a flare from the uh, movie Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Okay, so on the uh, New Spring Church website, uh, they've uh, been posting a series of videos entitled Five Days to Change. Are you ready to change but not sure where to start? Join Perry for the next five days to discover your next step and have your best year ever. So they've got different things, different short little videos about what you can do to change your life, experience life transformation. And day three, the video is entitled, I Can't Outgive God. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this, uh, this is the latest example of a seeker-driven guy who's uh, turned uh, John 3.16 into a, mm, a verse supposedly about uh, financial management and, of course, tithing. That's kind of the subtext of this. And by the way, John 3.16 has nothing to do with tithing, N nothing whatsoever to do with tithing. In fact, I might take you through it just in, in protest for what it is that you were about to hear. But this is uh, example number one of misadventures in bad biblical hermeneutics. Here's Perry Noble. Here we go. This year for Christmas, Karis, my six-year-old daughter, gave me one of these. Now, 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 you can't see what he's holding up there. He's holding up a $15 Apple App Store gift card, okay? And, of course, you know, Perry is excited. His, his, his daughter gave him a $15 App Store 
uh, gift card for Christmas. And this is all going to be part of the, uh, the, the message that he wants to give everybody. Now, notice something here. He hasn't begun with a biblical text. Nope. That's not what he's doing. He's begun with an illustration in order to make a bigger point. But keep in mind, illustrations, sermon illustrations are not theonoustos. Theonoustos meaning God-breathed. They are not inspired by God the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Now, despite the fact that seeker-driven guys claim to be receiving visions from God and to be inspired to do the things they're doing, um, no, they're not. And so beginning with the sermon illustration can be dangerous, not always, it can be dangerous because um, the message needs to be from the clear teaching of the Word of God, and usually illustrations are designed to help you understand that what a biblical text is saying, okay? And keep in mind, our biblical text for this tiny little message is, in, is well, John 3.16. Yeah, <clears throat> we continue. That's cute, and that's awesome, and she was so proud of the fact that she gave this to me. But let's be honest. I bought this for me. She did not. In fact, she got the $15. In fact, she probably got $30 and bought one for herself, just to be honest. But she got the money to buy this for me. And she gave it to me, and she was so thankful. And don't get me wrong. I was thankful. Praise God I didn't get this. Praise God I got this rather than a pair of socks or a tie that I'll never wear. What I'm saying is she was able to give to me because I gave to her first, which leads into our core value today. I cannot outgive God. It is a spiritual impossibility for us to outgive God. Now, this is absolutely true. Okay. Now, I, 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 you know, you just, what's your problem, Chris? You know, again, this is a misadventures and bad hermeneutics. Okay, so his illustration is his daughter gave him a fifteen dollar uh, Apple App Store gift card for Christmas, and let's be honest, um, the money that she had in order to buy the gift actually came from Perry Noble, which then leads to the bigger point: you can't outgive God, which is absolutely true. You can't. In fact, um, you know, the very air you're breathing right now is a gift from God, plain and simple. You know, you're on his planet. He created this planet. Um, he created all of the animals and the fishies and the plants and the birds and everything that, you know, is there to sustain your life. It's all a good and gracious gift from God. There's no way you can outgive God. And, and of course, again, this is all going to get down to John chapter 3 verse 16, which is not a tithing text, but see, he's talking about money. That's what Perry Noble is talking about. We continue. And the other thing that I've discovered now in walking with Christ for over two decades is that it's also an impossibility to say that we walk with Jesus, but our walk with Jesus not impact the way we spend, the way we manage, and the way we give when it comes to our money in regards to Jesus and regards to others. Yeah, so he's talking, like I said, we're talking about moolah here. This is all about money. And so, you know, hey, you can't be a, a Jesus follower and it not impact the way you spend. Now, I would agree, yeah, it's going to have an impact on the things that you uh, that you purchase and stuff like that. And also how you designate your funds and to whom you designate it to. 
Um, but keep this in mind. If somebody is demanding, absolutely demanding, you must give to God. Otherwise, you are not a Christian. That's, um, well, that is getting dangerously close to the Galatian heresy. We continue. I know some people go, oh, my gosh, God just wants my money. God has no desire to borrow money from you. God God wants your sin. God wants your guilt. God wants your shame. Um, he already has that. Um, God, Christ took that upon himself on the cross. He doesn't want it. He's, he, he's had it and had his way with it. All, all of our sins have been punished already and accounted for by Christ. God wants your pain, but God doesn't need or want your money but you know what we need we need god's blessing and the reason we oh so we need god's blessing see god doesn't need your money but we need god's blessing so if you want god's blessing you better start tithing to new spring put god first in an area in our life is not necessarily to get from him but it's so that we can experience abundant life in see it's not necessarily to get from him but it's so that we can experience an abundant life uh-huh. Notice he's not teaching from a biblical text. Now, so wh- the, there's a saying that I use from time to time here. A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Mm-hmm. So let me see if I got this straight. We don't give to God in order to get, but we need from him the blessing and abundant life that he's offering, but which requires us to give in order to get that. Uh-huh. That area. Now, Karis gave me a $15 iTunes gift card. I gave her for Christmas a trip to New York City. Oh, isn't that great? Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Shazam. Great. Uh huh. See, see, God is just like Perry Noble. You see, you, you see, when you give to God a fifteen dollar iTunes App Store gift card, God's going to give you a trip to New York City. Hmm. So if you compare this to a trip to New York City, nowhere in the same ballpark. It's the same thing with us putting God first in our finances and giving to him. Uh, Okay, yeah, but see, the thing is, is that we are two minutes and 18 seconds into this video, and um, hmm, we haven't actually seen him demonstrate any of this doctrine from a passage in God's word that says the things that he's saying, right? Most powerful verse on giving in the entire Bible is John 3.16. All right, most powerful. So now we've finally gotten to the Bible. We are literally three-quarters of the way through this video, and he's finally got to John 3.16, which isn't about tithing, okay? Uh, this is this is what I basically call uh, theological nagging. Okay, this is this is the this is not the gospel that you're about to hear. No, although the gospel's in the text, the way he's going to use it is more along the lines of what your mother says to you or said to you if you're younger, um, uh, you're older actually, older like me when you were younger. Um, you, what your mother would say to you when you wouldn't clean your room. And she would say something to the effect of, <clears throat> "By the way, I've I've never in my life ever heard this." <clears throat> ever once applied to me. <clears throat> okay, I'm lying. Okay, so I, I may have heard it um, more than once, a few times. All right, more than a few times, maybe several hundred. But the the point is, is that the the the, uh, the, the, the it goes like this. I can't believe this is how you treat me. 
<laughs> I mean, all I asked you to do is to clean up your room. I mean, don't you understand? I was in labor for 28 hours with you. And, oh, man, and, and I couldn't even have an epidural because the, the, the medical – it was natural childbirth. And it just – who, man, was – and this is how you returned what I've done for you? I mean, I carried you in my body for nine whole months and went through – horrific labor and i brought you into this world and now i'm just asking you to to please clean your room and you won't even do that is is this how you repay me for all that i've done for you yeah um that's not the gospel <laughs> okay that's not the guy but that's what he's going to turn john three sixteen into the you know although what he's trying to basically get at is well we give in response to the fact that God gives, but that's not exactly what he's doing. Listen in. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yeah, and that text has nothing to do with tithing. Why are you putting you hooking this up to the tithing thing? Um, okay. John chapter 3, by the way, great passage. Um, there's a little bit of wordplay going on that a lot of people aren't aware of because our English translations, I, I think uh, they, they, uh, they lead us a little bit astray. Let me explain. If you have your Bible, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Amen, Amen. I say to you, unless one is born anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this the reason I said anothen, okay, if you haven't heard this before, take note here. The Greek word that gets translated into English here as born again. That's I don't I, you know every time I work through this text this is not what he's he's not saying being born again I I know that's going to come as a shock to some of you okay now here's the thing anothen can mean one of two things all right and there's a little bit of wordplay going on here anothen can mean from above or anothen can mean again so it's absolutely valid to say this this uh, a correct translation would be again now the question is when jesus said unless one is born anothen he cannot see the kingdom of god was he referring to being born again or was he talking about being born from above and if you pay attention to the back and forth here Nicodemus, who comes to him by night, so, uh, so this is the Nick at night passage, um, you know, Nicodemus comes and he hears Jesus say, Anothen, and he's thinking again. But then Jesus describes what it means to be born Anothen, and what he's talking about is being born from above. All right. And so that's, I think, really the right way of looking at this. So the correct way to actually read the passage, and if you have the ESV, by the way, they have a little, um, they have a little uh, asterisk there, a little note. And if you read down in the margin, it says, or from above. The Greek is purposely ambiguous and can mean uh, both again and from above. I think Jesus was purposely being ambiguous because he's trying to, he's trying to make a point here. So truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, I'm going to put it in what I think this is, from above. 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus heard this, and he thought Jesus was saying being born again. So he says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But that's not what Jesus was talking about. So Jesus answered, amen, amen. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, he's describing what it means to be born from above. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anothen, from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So every time Jesus is talking about being born anothen, I I think the context is clear. He's talking about what it means to be born from above. Nicodemus here is born again, and he's going, huh, how can that happen? Because he was he wasn't noticing what Jesus was doing. So Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, anothen stuff, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Great passage. Great gospel stuff right in there. Oh, it's it's so comforting and assuring. And notice that, uh, that money wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes in this passage. So what is Perry Noble doing? Well, he's, you got to keep in mind, the seeker-driven model uh, for doing quote-unquote church is the most expensive enterprise ever known in the history of Christianity, probably minus the building of uh, St. Peter's in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it costs millions upon millions upon millions of dollars for the facilities for the for the uh the the employees and the leaders and everybody that you know the set dressers the the musicians and the smokes and the lights and the and you know, all of that stuff this is the most expensive way to quote unquote do church um ever invented by anybody and so, uh, well, let's let's put it this way: Perry Noble regularly talks about tithing, and the reason why is because if they don't bring in the gazillions of dollars necessary for them to, uh, you know, to keep the the show going, and that's I think a good way of talking about it. Um, well, then they won't have a show to give. Yeah, they'll default on all of their loans and things like that, and it'll be it's just a you know a mess. 
which, by the way, it's eventually going to happen to one of these mega churches. That's this. I, it's going to happen. It's you know, it's going to happen. And one of the reasons why they do the multi-site things is because their back door is as um, busy as their front door, and uh, and so they after a while they kind of burn everybody out, and they're not able to draw as many people to the mothership. And they've got to find a way to keep growing in order to pay the bills. I, that's one of the reasons why they do multi-site, by the way. Anyway, so um, this passage, John 3.16, has absolutely nothing to do with tithing. Yet, Perry Noble has decided to use this as the basis for browbeating everybody to give money to um, New Spring. Every time, don't miss this, every time you and I give, we preach the gospel. Uh, no, we don't. No, that's not true. Not every time we give, we do not preach the gospel. That's absolutely patently false. The gospel is good news. There's a message that goes with good news, and the Bible itself defines what that good news is. First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen. Uh, for I, you know, for what I well, let me pull it up and try to do it from memory here, and then my memory turned off. All right, First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Yeah, no. Um, every time I write a check to my church, I do not preach the gospel. That's patently false. We're reminded of the gospel. We're giving to God, oh, by the way, only what he put in our hands in the first place to give back to him. Yeah, th- this is true. We're giving to God, but it's just a small portion of what God gave to us, his son Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So with that in mind, with that in mind, what is the one thing that you can do today to begin to put God first in the area of your finances. Be- Ooh, I know, tithe to New Spring Church. That's the that's the answer to the question that he wants, right? What's the one thing you can do? Uh-huh. This is a twisting and misapplication and distortion of the gospel and it's it's absolutely sleazy and and well, it just makes me sick to my stomach. All right, what do you think? We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. I'm already behind here. Uh, we've got a, a David Crank update and also uh, this rabbi, you know, Van Lannan guy. You know, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> album entitled 
more like Jesus. The songs on this album will melt your face off in a sanctified way. This album includes the number one purpose-driven praise techno dance song of all time, entitled, well, you might just want to hear it for yourself. What about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. What about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think you officially suck as a human being. I think you officially suck as a human being. Listen, I'm playing games we all I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm not playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out with People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act now, and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. 
Warning, if your pastor has turned John 3.16 into a tithing text, you're in a church where the pastor twists God's word. Leave quickly. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's our next misadventure in um, bad biblical hermeneutics. Uh, We're going to be doing a David Crank update, which requires us to do, well, this. I have just closed my eyes again Climbed aboard the dream with a chain Drive and take away my worries of today And leave tomorrow behind Ooh, a dream weaver Our David Crank update, Dreamweaver. Now it's funny, you know, I, we picked that uh, music long ago for uh, David Crank, and what I find fascinating is that today it really, really, really fits the bill. Uh huh. Here's uh, David Crank from his recent message, uh, "Ready, Set, Goals." Here we go. Life has a way of containing us, but we all dream big. Every second of every day, a dream dies. But why? <laughs> what? Every second of every day, a dream dies. <laughs> Somebody quick, we need to have an awareness campaign made. I mean, can you see it? Somebody, some lady on an infomercial now, you know, the, you know, standing in front of a backdrop. Maybe the backdrop could be like, you know, the city dump. In uh, in you know Guatemala City or something like that, and and she's out there with a microphone, and she says, "Did you know that every second, of every day, a dream dies? Only you can help save these dreams from needlessly dying. Only you have the ability to keep these dreams alive and make it so that they grow and flourish rather than than dying and decomposing and rotting and being thrown into the city dump where they just... uh... (laughs) Oh, man. So I'm so glad that uh, the folks there at uh, Faith Church in St. Louis, Missouri, are are doing something to keep alive all of these dreams that are dying. A dream dies every second of every day. 
<laughs> we continue. Bye. Sometimes there's a wall standing between us and our destiny. A, a wall standing between us and our destiny. No. Say it isn't so. But our walls can break. The first place we give up is in our own mind. There's power in breaking free from our own limitations, our own barriers. Do you know where the Bible talks about any of this stuff? Yeah, I don't. It's easy to come up with excuses, reasons we can't accomplish the dreams that are deep inside of us. We are all made for something great. We can move forward. Oh, well, thankfully there's some good news in here, but it's not the biblical good news. We were all made for something great. Oh, that's, um, well, that's false good news. That's a false gospel. Don't let life contain you. Okay, I don't know what that means, but I'll be sure not to let life contain me. Now, all of this, by the way, is just prelude for <clears throat> the sermon. Come on. Come on, give God a great hand today for being so good. Great day. Good for what? Saving and rescuing all those dreams that are dying every second of every day? Uh-huh. What about the people who are dying every day and going to hell for eternity? You know, tonight we're going to talk about on your mark, get set, goal. On your mark, get set, goal. Each and every one of us have some kind of desire or dream for this new year. Lose weight, make more money, be more friendly. Uh, close a mega church, get people to listen to the gospel and rebel by leaving the mega churches and not tithing to them so they have to close their doors. Yeah, I, I have some goals for this year. Just all those things are little bitty things to some of us, but yet they're bigger things to other people and seem insurmountable. In fact, as you get older, sometimes if you're not cautious, you can actually not make New Year's resolutions because, you know, you just fail anyway. I all have had situations like that where you're like, man, my goodness, what, I don't even want to try. And the statistics say, more part of the year you're watching this, by January the 15th, that everybody, 95% of the people who made New Year's resolutions, that they have already thrown them away. Ah, forget it. Doesn't work. Actually, what it is is they haven't done what we really all need to continue to do, which is to make a resolution, which is a resolve. Uh-huh. So the, see, if only you would just make a resolution, it would solve all of your problems. <laughs> Where does the Bible teach this? Oh, man. Uh-huh. Okay, I don't need a crucified and risen Savior for this. I can get this from the infomercials. We continue. You're deciding beyond any doubt. This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it. And you say, well, that's willpower. Willpower is a great thing, but it's not enough <laughs> because sometimes you come home and you get really hungry and you decide to get lose weight, but you get hungry. How many of you like me? And you, no matter how much resolve you had 
boy, those, that, those chips had your name on it. I mean, it's just the way. I just don't know what to do. And so a lot of times we list things out and say, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to eat chips. I'm not going to, not going to, not going to. Not going to doesn't really get you very far in life. People focus on what they're going to abstain from instead of the dream and the reality of their future. The Bible- yeah, now there's the turn right there. So, listen, it, you shouldn't be focusing on the negative, what you're not going to do. You have to focus on what you're going to do. You need to have. You need to focus on the dream or vision that you have for your life. Now, I'm going to back this up just a smidge so that you can hear this in context. We continue. Dream and the reality of their future. The Bible said, without a vision, my people perish. Yeah, by the way, that's Proverbs 29, verse 18, out of context. Okay, do you think that Proverbs 29, verse 18 is about New Year's resolutions and having a focus on some dream or vision that God has for your life so that uh, you can experience weight loss, um, you know, financial improvements and things of the sort. No, that's not what's going on in Proverbs 29, verse 18. Uh, The whole verse, by the way, says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, comma, but blessed is he who keeps the law, the Torah. In other words, where where can we find a prophetic vision that will keep people from casting off restraint. That this is where there is no vision, people perish. Well, yeah, cast off restraint is the better way of translating that. Uh, and where can we find prophetic vision? Answer, the written word of God. Proverbs 29, 18 has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever about you receiving an individual vision that God has for your life so that you can make things better. Of course, you know, keep in mind, we've learned this, 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 this disconcerting statistic that a vision, a dream dies every second of every day somewhere around the world. Oh, this is terrible. But we continue. I've been saying here at Faith Church, without a vision, people go to another parish. So I'm always saying it, spraying it, wheeling it, dealing it, make you feel it. We are going somewhere. But a lot of people meander through life. But on your mark, get set, goal, that's different. The Bible's always talking about on your mark, get set, goal, in the form sometimes of, of runners and in Really, the Bible's talking about on your market set goal in the form of runners? What Bible are you reading? In a race. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, it says, In a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the first prize. Okay, now hold on a second here. 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. It said 9, 24. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 9. Now, do you think 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 is about ready, set, goal and setting New Year's resolutions for yourself? Nope, not at all. In fact, let me back up a little bit here, and we'll read this in context. First Corinthians chapter 9, I'll start at verse 16. Here's what it says. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if I do it, do not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. So what then is my reward? <clears throat> that, in, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, 
so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, and we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Aha! Uh-huh. <clears throat> now that we've uh, taken a look at the context, which required us to go into chapter 10, we can see what's going on in this passage. And this passage has nothing to do whatsoever with setting New Year's resolution, resolutions, but is talking about not giving into temptations to evil and to sin. That's what's going on here. But do you think David Crank's going to do talk about that? No, not at all. Some run the race to win. Everybody shout, I run the race to win. To win the contest, you must deny yourselves many things that you would keep from doing and keep you from doing your best. Yeah, you got to deny some things, but every athlete goes to all this trouble to win a blue ribbon, a silver cup, Oh, we do it for a heavenly reward. We do it for a heavenly reward. Let me suggest to you that a lot of the things that you have dreams and desires for, they're really not your desires anyway. Remember this, the Bible says that I'll give you the desires of your heart. I, I remember when I was praying one time, going to make my mark. I'm so notice he didn't talk about sin, evil, and temptation to sin, and repenting and being forgiven, no. Uh, the, apparently, this passage about you know you know winning the prize is about well setting goals and making New Year's resolutions so that you don't focus on the negative. Oh, I don't want to eat. Instead, focus on the positive. I have a dream and vision for my life of being skinny, so therefore I can, you know, that's what I need to focus on. That and First Corinthians nine is supposedly encouraging me along those lines when it's not. And of course, God wants to give you the dreams and desires of your heart. Since I desire to be skinny, that's what God wants to give me. So I just need to focus on that and not focus on the negative. And then 
presto blamo, I have a vision that will keep me from perishing, and I just need to run the, the race to win the prize, which is skinniness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this isn't working. I'm like, okay, God, this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to go. I need this to happen. And I was begging God for this new church that we were going to build in Earth City. So they laid out all the blueprints. They said the platform could be here in the corner or it could be in the middle. Tim Burton and some other guys were there, and they would sit in chairs way back in the back because the, the auditorium didn't rise like this one does. It's a flat floor. And so they had to figure out, if you're 27 rows back, can you see me? No. So they kept putting me on higher chairs and higher chairs. What we were really doing is we were making a mark. We were having a plan. We were ready to go. And while all this was going on, I couldn't say and focus on the obstacles. This is going to be hard. We're not going to have enough money. Actually, the people at the other church don't even like it. The people in Fenton are yelling, saying, oh, he's leaving. He's going to Earth City. Look how much nicer that building is. He'll never come back here. And I would go back on Sunday and say, I'm going to be here forever or at least a few miles from here. Trust me, I'm not going anywhere. People were trying to knock me off of my mark. You have a mark. That mark that you and I are supposed to make, for me, my mark was to build the local church, a place where people could grow strong and families would stay together and people that were suicidal would would come in and say, wait a minute, life is worth living. And so I was begging God, God, give me the money. God, help me to do it and shut the people up in Fenton that are saying I'm leaving because people are leaving. God, kill them. God, just kill them. No, God, don't kill them. We need them. But I was trying to make my mark and I was trying to convince God to do something that actually it wasn't my desire. I remember that the day that he told me, he said, I know the plans that I have for you. And these plans that you're trying to get me to con, you're trying to con me into doing, I actually gave you the desire to do it. <laughs> Think about it, Dave. Who would want 47 air conditioners that need to be repaired at $20,000 a piece? Some of y'all, you're not interested I mean, I'm not interested in football-sized fields of parking lots that need to be maintained and resurfaced. Some of y'all not, no, no, no. It doesn't make sense. And my lightning-fast mind clued in, and I go, wait a minute. Oh, see, the reason why it must be from God is because it doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, that makes sense. Wait a minute. My on-your-mark, get-set goal is not really my goal at all anyway. Maybe, just maybe, that that goal that you have to have a stronger marriage isn't about you. It's about the legacy that you're going to leave to your children and your children's children. Maybe building that business or having that bigger... Which would still be about you. ...bigger house isn't about you. Maybe God put the desire in you to have and attain that thing. Maybe your desire for a bigger house has its root in greed, uh, which is a sin that, that has its origin in your blackened, sinful heart so that somebody would listen to you. See, we're a God's advertisement program. I mean, um, the lottery knows this. Every time you go down the road and you see a big billboard, it's the lottery. So we're God's advertisement program. And so you having a big house is like saying, that's like God's way of saying, hey, come on, be a Christian and you too can have a big house. says, look here, this woman won a 2014 Grand Am. This guy over here only played one time, and he won a million dollars. This guy was blowing his leaves, and he found the lottery ticket of a lifetime. How many of y'all saw that the other day? I told Nicole, go outside and blow the leaves. We need money. (laughs) 
See, see, many times we're waiting on the lotto mentality. Maybe something will happen. I found that the harder I work, the luckier I become. When I really focus my mind's eye and say, wait a minute, I didn't choose this plan for my life. God chose it for me. And I'm going to make these new goals, which you could break down goals as go all, all, go all. That means that we have to say, hey, this new plan and design that we're making for this year doesn't allow me to keep certain things in the house that I'm weak for. I'll close my eyes. How many of y'all got some things in the house that shouldn't be in the house? Uh, all right. I've, I've had enough of that particular sermon, but you get the point. <clears throat> um, were we really hearing what God's word says? <clears throat> Not on your life. We were hearing God's word twisted and mangled, um, which, by the way, is you know pretty much what we're going to hear throughout this episode of Fighting for the Faith and most of the future episodes of Fighting for the Faith and pretty much most of the past episodes of Fighting for the Faith is... Why is it that the most popular megachurch pastors and television people are the worst at handling God's Word? Uh Uh-huh. Because they're skilled at telling people what they want to hear rather than preaching the truth and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. David Crank had a great opportunity to do that uh, from uh, 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. Of course, he decided not to preach that particular message because that would be negative and if he's all about positive thinking and creating your future with your words and positive thoughts and things like that. And, of course, he has to model that for everybody. So why talk about a passage? You know, Why read a passage that talks about sin and evil and repenting and things like that when he could just rip it out of context and focus on the, the positive part, part of it and ignore the negative, which is a form of Bible twisting and bad hermeneutics. Okay, talk about bad hermeneutics. Uh, the next person we're going to be listening to, uh, first time I've ever heard him, his name is, his name is Ray Vanderlan, and uh, I probably haven't even pronounced his name right. And uh, what you're going to hear is uh, a portion from a video that apparently is very popular in evangelical uh, small group studies. And, um, and this is called uh, When the Rabbi Says Go. That's the name of the video. And he's literally uh, preaching beside the Sea of Galilee in uh, in Israel. And uh, what you're going to hear here is bad hermeneutics. And I mean really bad hermeneutics, except for this one's more subtle than anything we've done so far. The reason why it's more subtle is because this guy actually has some passion and gusto to him. He's got a little bit of chutzpah, if you would. Um, and, you know, he's got some good production value to go along with these videos but I want you to follow along. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be taking a look at the story of Peter walking on the water. You can find it again in Matthew chapter 14. And let's see, we're going to start at verse 22. So Matthew 14, 22, have your Bible open and ready there to follow along because uh, i got to demonstrate to you just what's going on here and how you untangle something like this. So here is Ray Vanderlan and uh, his video, When the Rabbi Says Go. Here we go. To pray, which in Hebrew means more than pray, it means to worship. So picture him up here somewhere worshiping. The disciples started out, they began rowing. It says that the wind came up. And they were against the wind and a storm. And in the storm, they get in trouble. The waves are there. They're in danger not only to them of drowning, but 
The abyss is that added danger of what happens if we go down in here. And the text says, Jesus watched them all night. So you just picture it a minute. Here he sits. The boat is out there. They're working like crazy to row. They're upset. They're worried. They're yelling at each other, keep rowing. And he's watching. And then what I think helps us to appreciate the delightful teaching of Jesus, his miraculous power, of course, but also his, shall we call it, rabbi sense of humor. Because the Bible says, at the fourth watch of the night, which is probably four o'clock in the morning, Jesus went out to them walking on the water. Now, I suppose that's kind of funny when you think back on it. But listen to the next line. He was going to walk on by. Hey, guys. How you doing? It's good to see you out here tonight. And he goes walking out on the water right past those guys in the boat. They react, as you would expect. They say, it's a ghost. This is the abyss, after all. So it's a ghost. Jesus stopped. Somebody said, it's Jesus. And Peter said, if that's you, I want to come to you walking on the water. Now, okay, you'll notice here that he isn't actually reading the text. He's giving us his summary of the text, which sometimes can get you into trouble. Not always, but sometimes. So let's let's go ahead and read the, uh, the the Gospel of Matthew account here. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 is where I'll begin. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side where he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now you'll notice he's what he's doing is taking a couple of different accounts of the same event and creating, if you would, kind of a, a... what's the word I'm looking for, a a harmony between the gospel accounts of this. So he's not exactly preaching from Matthew 14, and he's sort of summarizing and he's harmonizing some some elements by pulling from some of the other gospel accounts of the same event. Okay, no no problem there, Uh, but let's keep reading. Uh, So take heart as I do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you... Come, uh, say, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, well, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he walked, uh, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Okay, That's where this pericope ends, if you would, you know, with the, the disciples worshipping Jesus and them saying he is the Son of God, which is a theologically packed statement. These are uh, Jewish men basically confessing that Jesus is not only Messiah, but that he's God in human flesh. That's the result of all of this, okay? 
Now, where do you think Ray Vanderland is going to point us to? Is he going to point us to Jesus and have us worshiping Jesus at the end of this account? Who do you think, according to Ray Vanderland, um, Peter was doubting in? Was he doubting Jesus? If you think he was doubting Jesus, well, you got a, you got another thing coming. And this is a big hermeneutical um, mess up on the part of Ray. But uh, let's keep listening. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you really think Peter thought he could walk on water? I mean, really? We don't know for sure, of course, but he's a fisherman. Every time he'd ever gotten out of a boat anywhere, he sank like a rock. I don't think he thinks he can walk on water, but why does he get out of the boat? Because Jesus told him to. He had a sure and certain word from Jesus. He wants to be like his rabbi. Do you understand? He wanted to be like the rabbi so badly that... Uh, The text doesn't say he wanted to be like the rabbi. The text doesn't say that. It does say that he had a sure and certain word from Jesus. Jesus said, come. So he trusted Jesus and Jesus' words. He was willing to drown to be like Jesus. How bad do you want it? You see, if you're going to follow a rabbi who walks on water, you have to get out of the boat. You cannot stay in the boat. He will stretch you so far outside your comfort zone, you won't even be able to see it anymore. His friends had to be shocked, and there he stands. I did it! And then it says... he. Okay, notice, he just inserted something in the text. None of the Gospels have Peter shouting out, I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, could you take credit for walking on the water as some kind of skill that you've learned and mastered and something that you can now do? No. The only way you can walk on the water is if God miraculously gives you the ability to do that. He had a sure and certain word from Christ. Christ said, come, and he got out of the boat and walked towards Jesus. So there's little things interspersed in Ray's account here of the of Peter walking on the water that shows you that his emphasis is completely on the wrong syllable. We've got a major problem here, and that is is that uh, Ray has is giving us an anthropo anthropocentric reading here, a man centered reading of this text rather than a Christ-centered reading of this text. And this is clearly one of those texts that must be Christ-centered, because at the end of it, who gets worshipped? Jesus does. And they confess him to be the Son of God. We continue. He saw the wind, and he became afraid. And he began to sink. Jesus reached out his hand, pulled him up, And said, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Now, stop. That's key in this text. Oh, you of little faith. Faith always has an object. Who is the object of Peter's faith? Answer, Jesus is. Not me, not you, not himself. Jesus is the object of Peter's faith. So, Jesus, by saying that, is chastising his little faith in Jesus. Watch what Ray does here. Why did you doubt? 
doubt who? Jesus. See, I always wanted to make Peter doubt Jesus. Yeah, that's because that's what the text is showing us. Okay, now, we can also use the concept of Scripture interpreting Scripture. Okay? In Scripture, who are Christians in, you know, basically told to put their faith in themselves or Jesus Christ? Answer, Jesus Christ. Who are Christians to believe in? Same concept, Jesus Christ. Nowhere in Scripture are Christians ever, 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 even remotely told to believe in themselves. In fact, ourselves, we're the problem. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is God. Our faith and our trust is in him, not ourselves. So the fact that the text itself has Jesus chastising Peter for his lack of faith and asks the question, why did you doubt? Doubt is the opposite of faith. And then the text ends with Jesus being worshipped as the Son of God by everybody in the boat. Um, It's very clear who it is that Peter was doubting. It was, he was doubting Jesus. Watch what Ray does. He doesn't doubt Jesus. Jesus is still standing there. Who does Peter doubt? Peter loses confidence in who he is as a Talmud. Who he is as a Talmud. That's uh, the Hebrew word for um, disciple. No, the text doesn't say that at all. If we are going to be disciples of the rabbi, it's not only about a passion in our chest to be like him. It's not only the conviction that he believes in us so we can be what he calls us to be. Uh, Nowhere in scripture does it say that God believes in us. But it's also an awareness that we have to believe in ourselves. Uh, Nowhere in scripture are we told to believe in ourselves. Christians for two millennia have been called believers, not because they believe in themselves, but because they believe in Christ. That we can, by the power of his spirit and the direction of his word, be what Jesus wants us to be. That we can be what Jesus wants us to be. The text ends with them worshiping Jesus, not Peter realizing, oh, I can finally be what I want to be. I don't know about you, but I've had enough of staying in the boat. I don't want to stay in the boat anymore. Yeah, that's great. Um, You haven't been asked by Jesus to come out of the boat. I want to get out and walk like the rabbi. Uh, You won't be able to do that unless Jesus actually says that you can do that and your faith is in him. Say these words after me. Okay, listen carefully. This is really dangerous. Whoever is in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. These are the very words of God. No, they're not. Nowhere in Scripture does it say we if we're we have to walk the way Jesus walked. This is this is 180 degrees backwards. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable, and what's gone on here is he's completely twisted the text, omitted the important parts, overemphasized something, and then eisegeted, he literally stuck into the text, stuff that wasn't there. And how did he do it? 
Well, if you read, if not read, if you watch the other videos, uh, he spends a lot of time on this concept of, you know, the rabbi and disciple and stuff like that. So he's created some kind of out of out of the Bible cultural matrix that supposedly is going to fill in all the blanks here, which then gives him the ability to teach the opposite thing of what the text actually says and what the thing means. Uh, the story of Peter walking on the water, the significance of it has nothing to do whatsoever with you learning how to walk the way Jesus walked so that uh, you can understand that Jesus believes in you and you need to not doubt yourself. That is absolutely 180 degrees backwards of what biblical Christianity says and even what that text says in context. This is an extremely, extremely dangerous teaching. Uh, that uh, we uh, just listened to. And unfortunately, from what I've seen from the other videos, this is tip of the iceberg. Uh, if you know anybody who's watching these videos by Ray Vanderland, um, he, you might want to uh, take him through this seg- segment and explain to them how he's completely flipping God's word and putting it, literally spinning it around and putting it on its head and making it say the opposite of what it actually is saying in these texts so that they can be warned. This is not somebody who should be trusted, whom they should be getting their theology from. This is no good at all. All right. You get what I'm saying. All right. We're up on our uh, second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon review from LCBC. More misadventures in bad Bible hermeneutics. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Number two of fighting for the faith. We'll have to uh, save that article from Relevant Magazine until uh, Thursday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Stay tuned. We will get to it. But uh, we've got a sermon review that we've got to do today here. Heading back to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, David Ashcraft and Company. 
details coming forthwith. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via lcbc that would be lives changed by christ harrisburg pennsylvania david ashcraft presiding the name of the sermon series is entitled rock notes yeah i don't know what that means and this is just week one of the sermon series pay close attention you actually won't have to pay that much attention we're going to point out a major twisting of God's word here. It doesn't matter if it's intentional or not. It is a twist. And the reason it's a twist is because it's a misunderstanding and of the need to properly distinguish between law and gospel. And as a result of that, missing what the church's mission is. Yep, that's right. The church has a mission, if you would. And uh, unfortunately, David Ashcraft isn't going to properly tell us what that mission is. Let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is uh, Rock Notes Week 1 by David Ashcraft. Here we go. Well, back in the mid-1990s, a Stanford professor by the name of Jen Collins actually wrote a book entitled Built to Last. And in this book, he studied research. He took research data information that he and his research team, just kind of mountains and mountains of research data that they had collected on successful organizations, successful businesses around the country. And they're trying to figure out what is it that makes some organizations more successful than others. Now, just a little note here. One of the things I've noticed about seeker-driven guys they over-imbibe on pop-level uh, business leadership books. This is like you know, the milieu that they, they like to swim in. And so already we're off on, a, uh, on the wrong foot. Although, again, it's an illustration supposedly to lead us to a text. It would be much better if you gave us the text and then gave us an illustration. Uh, and so read the text in context and then use the illustrations to help us understand what those texts are saying. Okay, does that make sense? Here we've got an illustration that's supposedly going to set up what we're going to do, and then we're going to get a biblical text. And as you're going to see, the illustration is going to govern the story and the sermon rather than God's Word. That is a backwards way of doing things. What is it that makes some thrive and some succeed and others not? And so they looked at the very best, and as they came away from looking at all this data, that they were able to kind of decide or find out that the best organizations have a very clear sense of purpose. Best organizations understand why they exist and what they're about, why they're there as an organization. And so they actually listed some of the different organization, their purpose statements, the core purpose for organizations. I thought it would be interesting to see if you would recognize any of the different kind of core purpose statements of some of these organizations. So let me just kind of give you, I'll throw a few of them out here and see if you recognize who they are. First one, let's try this one. Their core purpose, they say, is to experience the emotion of competition, winning and crushing the competition. Any idea who that would be? Maybe no runners in the crowd. Nike is actually. Experience the emotion of competition, crushing the competition. Nike's main purpose for existence, they would say. How about this? To provide a global online marketplace where practically anyone could trade practically anything. eBay, all right? eBay as a possibility. Definitely eBay. Anyone can sell practically anything on eBay would be their statement. All right, how about this one? To prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies. 
Okay, I heard murmuring, not sure if I heard Red Cross, but Red Cross would be this one. Say, we want to alleviate human suffering in emergencies. How about to create more informed, a more informed public? This one's interesting. We'll find out who listens to uh, public radio. But this is actually National Public Radio, NPR. A more informed public, they would say. And I'm not sure how you're doing on this, but uh, to provide a world where everyone has a decent place to live. All right, heard several of you say habitat, habitat for humanity. It would be this one, a decent place for everybody to live. All right, to give unlimited opportunity to women. Now, this will be an interesting one, to provide, to give unlimited opportunity to women. Mary Kay, Mary Kay Cosmetics on that one. Unlimited opportunities for women. Must be no sales people here in, in the group. To give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. Heard a couple of guesses here, Facebook, Twitter, actually Twitter, this would be theirs. Unlimited information instantly without barriers, all right? This one, to give ordinary folks a chance to buy the same things as rich people. We all like that. Ordinary people buying the same things as rich people. Oh, you'll love this one. Walmart, Walmart, there you go. (laughs) I just want to say, Ruth and I were in Houston on Thursday and we went to Walmart and... um, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, We were at Walmart on Thursday. To make people happy. This one you'll realize right away. Walt Disney or Disney World to make people happy. Now what's interesting is these are the purposes why they say they exist. Now I'm not saying they do it or they don't do it. This is why they say they exist for those particular purposes. Now what's interesting, not only do they have a purpose for existence, but typically they'll also have a list of behaviors to say, if we're going to accomplish this. So like Walt Disney, if we're going to make people happy, how do we have to behave? How do we have to act in order to have this actually happen for people to be happy? So for Walt Disney, this is what they actually say on their list of behaviors. They say, no cynicism allowed. So let's watch the attitude, they kind of say. They also say, fanatical attention to detail. And if you've been to any of Disney's facilities, you know the detail is incredible that they're focusing on. Continuous progress via creativity and imagination. In other words, let's not get stuck, but let's make sure that we're constantly dreaming, imagining, making progress, moving forward, being creative. Fanatical control of Disney's magic image. Let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to mess up the image of the organization. And then they also say, bring happiness to millions. And they also then say to celebrate wholesome American values. And these are the ways that they behave in order to hopefully bring happiness to people around them. And again, I'm not saying they do it or don't do it. These are just kind of their list of behaviors. Now, because I was at Walmart on Thursday, I thought it might be interesting to see what their, their statements would be. And so Walmart, first of all, says provide value to our customers. So I want to make sure that we're giving good value to the customers. Make lives better via lower prices and greater selection. Let's make sure there's lots and lots of things and low prices. Swim upstream, buck conventional wisdom. Be partnership, be in partnership with our employees. And they'll talk about working with a passion, commitment, and enthusiasm. And they also talk about running lean. Now again, whether they're accomplishing their goal, their purpose or not, that's not my purpose in talking about it. It's just saying that Jim Collins, as he looks at organizations, says you've got to know why you exist and you've got to have a set of behaviors to help you accomplish your purpose. Now, thousands of years before Jim Collins came up with that, Jesus actually made some statements. 
Statements as to why we, his followers, exist. Statements why, why anyone who would say, yeah, I want to follow God, I want to follow Jesus, why we would exist. And Jesus actually kind of laid it out there before. His- okay, now I'm going to stop here. So uh, up to this moment in the sermon, what we've had is an illustration, a five-minute long illustration, basically talking about corporate mission and vision statements and the values that go along with it. And now he segued and said, now we as Christians have to understand why we exist. Okay? Mm. Okay, so what is the Christian church's mission vision statement? Wait till you hear where he goes, because the biblical text will not support what he's saying. Listen in. It was even cool before it was even popular to have purpose statements. And so this is what Jesus said as far as our existence. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. So he says, first thing you need to understand is love God with everything that you have. But then he goes on on his statement. He says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you kind of boil down what Jesus is saying, he says you need to love God with everything that you have, but then you also need to love others as well. And so he kind of combines those two things together. If we're to summarize it, and he says, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Now, let's go ahead and add some context here. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. In the surrounding context, will I find that Jesus here is giving us the mission and vision statement for why Christians exist, why people exist? Answer, no. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 reads this, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question in order to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Ah, so this was a quest. This was the an answer to a test question thrown to him that had to do with the question was what's the greatest commandment? He, the question was what's the, the question wasn't what's the mission and vision statement for humanity? Now this is then you know by the way this then leads to the big issue since it's not the in the context of talking about the mission and vision statements for humanity or for Christianity or whatever. What is it? This is about what's the greatest commandment. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the entire law compressed down into its squishiest, you know, most compact form, in its densest form. What's the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the law? Is the purpose of the law to give us our mission and vision statement? No. Scripture actually tells us what the purpose of the law is in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 19. It says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped or shut up, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous or justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Yeah, that's the purpose of the law, to basically show you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. 
Romans then continues, but the, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So now we've got a problem. The text that um, David Ashcraft is going to to find our mission and vision statements as Christians is the law. It's the summary of the law. And Christians understand that the purpose of the law is to condemn people and show them their sinful state so that they may be brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So biblically, um, yeah, the summary of the Mosaic law is not going to be the mission statement for the church. The mission statement for the church is found in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, um, uh, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Ah, go and make disciples. And the message that we're given to uh, preach while we're making disciples is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, where Jesus makes it clear that we're to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So now we got a problem, and that is is that David Ashcraft, in the way he set up the sermon, has created the false impression that Jesus, when he's talking about uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that somehow Jesus is giving us um, the uh, the mission and vision statements that we're to live by as a, as a, as a church and Christian organization. It's um, not exactly correct. In fact, it's kind of missing the mark. And he says, that's our reason for existence. Love God and love others. Now that's what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. We can actually even go back further than that. Thousands of years before Jesus even lived, God said, look, there's a reason for us to be here. There's a reason for our existence. And if I were to summarize what God said when he was talking about this thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, this would be my summary of what God says. He says, your whole life ought to be wrapped up in loving me, being God. Your whole life ought to be wrapped up in loving me with everything that you've got and with treating others the way you want to be treated. Love God, love others. Bottom line, that's what God says. That's why we exist. That's our purpose for being here. Now, not only did God give us that purpose statement, loving God and love others, but, but like all good organizations, he kind of had, so there's some behaviors that go along with that. There's ways that you need to behave in order to love God and in order to love others. And, and not only this is how to behave to love God and love others, but this is how to behave if you're going to experience life to the full, if you're going to experience life to the max and enjoy everything that God has to offer in life. And so God gives us... Well, then none of us are going to live life to the full or to the max because every one of us sins daily. And that proves we do not love God with all of our heart, and it proves that we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. What Ashcraft is doing is actually condemning everybody who's listening to him. This is a big problem. It's a list of behaviors, and, and that list of behaviors has become known over time as something we call the Ten Commandments. 
And the Ten Commandments really just kind of describe God's list of behaviors. This is how to behave if you're going to experience life to the full. This is how to experience life. These are the behaviors that, in order to experience life to the full? Oh, man. Uh, what about the part where if you don't do these things, um, well, then you stand condemned before God? You know, things like that. To the max. This is how to love God and how to love others. Now, as soon as I say the Ten Commandments, my guess is you'd know something about the Ten Commandments. If we were to go around and I were to ask you, okay, tell me what the Ten Commandments are. Odds are you could come up with three, four, maybe five of them. But I don't know that we'd all come up with all ten of them. But we all know a little bit of something about the Ten Commandments. But, but let me just tell you why God even had to come out with the Ten Commandments to begin with. Why he even needed to give this list of behaviors to begin with. See, back when God first came out with the list of these ten behaviors, he was actually writing them to a group of people that had been in slavery for 400 years. It was the nation of Israel. They'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. No freedom whatsoever. They were told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, how often to do it. No freedom whatsoever. All they experienced was abuse. All they experienced was being told what and how to do life. And 400 years of that, God brings the nation of Israel out of slavery, gives them freedom, complete freedom. And as soon as they begin to experience freedom, they just kind of go berserk. And they've never had to make choices before. They've never had the freedom to make choices before. So all of a sudden they find themselves and, and life is just in total chaos. And they're lying to each other and they're stealing from one another. And they're... What, where are you getting this? I mean, you're not reading this from the book of Exodus. Because no sooner did the children of Israel um, get across the Red, uh, the Red Sea that uh, they actually... They're not, they're not that far away from Sinai. They're pretty much going to make a beeline to Sinai from, from there. Um, wh- what are you talking about? Coveting what each of them have, and, and they're committing adultery. They're murdering one another. And God says, well, wait a minute. What's going on here? You're just kind of out. Really, which part of Exodus is the part where God says, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? Um. What, which part of Exodus has that again recorded in it? I don't recall that anywhere in the book of Exodus. Out of control. Everything is out of control. Your lives are miserable and you've got freedom, but you're not experiencing it. So God steps back and says, wait a minute, look, I'm the one that actually set you free. I'm the God who actually brought you out of the land of Egypt, gave you freedom. And, and now, even though you have freedom, you're living in a way that you're not experiencing life to the max and you're not experiencing. Where in Exodus does God lament the fact that they're not living life and experiencing it to the max? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, let's just put it this way. Uh, this particular paraphrase is so far from the truth that um, I don't know how uh, David Ashcraft is able to actually deliver it without having major pangs of conscience striking him and him having to uh, you know, feel so guilty because he's not speaking the truth. Experiencing life to the full. And, and so he says, I just need to give you some behaviors. He's like, if you're going to experience life the way it's designed to be experienced, if you're going to be able to enjoy life, that it's just not this total freedom where you just do anything, everything that you think you want to do and you're abusing other people. He says, you're back in living in an abused situation and it's not a good situation. So God gives us and gave them a list of 10 different behaviors to say, okay, if you're going to experience life, if you're going to love God, if you're going to love others, this is how you need to behave. Now, oh, man, I mean, there isn't an honest biblical scholar who would back this man up in what he's saying.
As we jump into kind of the Ten Commandments themselves, before we do, let me just give you two words of caution. Well, whenever anybody begins to kind of look at the Ten Commandments, oftentimes what actually happens is we look at them and instantly we think, okay, this is a list of do's and don'ts. These are the things that I can and can't do. And that's what we think of with the Ten Commandments. And, and we think if I do these things, God's going to bless me. If I don't do these things, God's going to bless me. Or if I do certain things, then God's going to punish me and it's going to be awful. And so instantly we think of them as a list of do's and don'ts. But God never intended the Ten Commandments to be a list of do's or don'ts. Instead, let me challenge you to think of the Ten Commandments. Again, these are behaviors on how to experience life to the full. These are behaviors on how to experience life to its maximum potential. And rather than thinking them as a list of do's and don'ts, I want to challenge you to begin to think of the Ten Commandments as really just guardrails on how to do life and how to do life well. Now, you know what guardrails are, especially over the last several weeks. With all the snow and ice that we've had, it seems like more than what we typically have had at least over the last several years. Lots of snow and ice on the roads. And so if you're out driving on the roads, you know they're slick, you know that they're dangerous. And all of a sudden you begin to appreciate things on the roads we call guardrails. And and guardrails show up wherever there's a potential dangerous situation. And so you'll find a guardrail on the side of a bridge that's going to keep you from going over the edge of the bridge. Or you find a guardrail where there are sharp turns. Or you find guardrails at the edge of a cliff that are going to keep you from going over the cliff. Or, or you'll see guardrails in the middle of the road to protect you from oncoming traffic. And guardrails are there really to protect us. Guardrails are there really to keep us safe so we can experience life to the full. And, and yeah, it might be true that if the guardrails weren't there, then we could experience even more. I suppose if guardrails weren't on the edge of the bridge, we could get as close as possible to the edge of the bridge. And we might go over, we might not, but it could be a little bit closer to the edge. And if there were no guardrails around sharp turns, we we might be able to hug the edge more. Or if there were no guardrails along the edge of cliffs, then maybe we could get closer. If there were no guardrails in the middle of oncoming traffic, we might be able to get closer to the other side. But but you kind of look at it and say, really, if I think about it, those guardrails are there to protect me. And especially when it's icy, especially when it's snowy, like it's been over the last several weeks. And then I kind of go, I'm happy the guardrails are there. And yeah, they limit me a little bit, but they're there for my protection. They're there for my good. And so really I'm thankful that the guardrails are there. And so when it comes to the Ten Commandments, let me challenge you to think of them as guardrails for us on how to do life. And they're the guardrails that have been placed there by a loving God, a God who says, look, I don't want you to experience harm. I just want to protect you. I want you to experience the most out of life. You've got freedom. I want you to keep your freedom. Here are some behaviors to help you get the most out of life. And I mean, think of them. Now, <clears throat> he's doing a lot here to try to soften the blow, if you would, um, regarding the uh, the Ten Commandments. Soften the blow. Uh, you know, kind of put a lot of sugar over that pill. But remember, I just read for you Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Scripture is clear. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin. Okay, now let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read for you uh, from Exodus chapter 20, and let's take a look at the context of what's going on here. And let's see if the people, if the children of Israel received these, um, these Ten Commandments as guardrails and afterwards thought, oh, thank you, God, for giving us some guardrails so that we can experience life to the full. 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, By the way, the children of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. The, the fire, the, you know, there's fire at the top of Mount Sinai. I mean, it just... You know the cover. The top of the mountain is covered in smoke and fire, and and there's peals of of thunder and there's lightning. And this, I mean, so the kind of context of what's going on here is commandment number one comes down. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Yeah, that's what's going on. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, now here's the response. Note what this response is. Note is not this. Oh, thank you, God. We are so happy that you've given us 10 behaviors that will help us experience life to the full. Mm -hmm. Verse 18 says this, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. (laughs) Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that you f- that that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, and while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Yeah, that's the context uh, in which the Ten Commandments uh, were given. Does that sound anything like what David Ashcraft is trying to sell us here regarding the Ten Commandments? as guardrails from a God who has been watching people abuse one another. And he did that. He gave them freedom out of their slavery, and they start cheating and lying and stealing and adultery and killing. And he says, whoa, I just brought you out of that kind of environment. Yeah, all of that happened after he gave him the Ten Commandments, by the way. And I brought you in an environment where you can experience freedom and life to the full. And so he said, here's some guardrails. And they're really principles to make life worth living. They're really principles that just kind of outline acceptable standards of behavior. This is how to do life and how to do it well, just acceptable relationships. And so the first caution I would give you is don't think of them as do's and don'ts. Think of them as guardrails. The other caution, whenever it comes to the Ten Commandments, is there's this tendency to add to them, to make them more than what they actually were ever meant to be. And especially religious leaders tend to get excited about adding to the Ten Commandments. And so let me just give you an example of what religious leaders tend to do. Fourth command. 
is to observe the Sabbath day, to keep the Sabbath day holy. One day, one command, talking about just keeping the Sabbath day holy. And and yet over time, religious leaders getting excited about this one decided that we we need to add a few more rules to this one. So instead of there being one rule, one command, keep the Sabbath day holy, religious leaders added 1,521 more laws or regulations to go along with this one in order to make sure that we truly do observe the Sabbath day. But that's never what God intended. Yeah, I don't think the Pharisees actually added 1,000 other Sabbath. Sabbath laws. I, I think that's a little, you're kind of not exactly telling the truth about what the Pharisees did. Yeah, the Pharisees did add a whole bunch of other laws, but not a thousand extra Sabbath laws. You know, that wasn't God's purpose or intention. Or the third command it talks about not misusing God's name, making sure that we keep God's name holy. And so he says, don't misuse my name. And so religious leaders are getting their zeal to say, let's add to this. Let's make sure everybody understands it. They actually came to the point of saying, let's never use God's name at all. We won't spell it. We won't write it. We won't say it. We'll never use God's name. But that was never God's intention. It wasn't to go silent on his name. He just says, don't misuse it. Don't abuse it. And so the cautions. And the irony there is that's exactly what Ashcraft is doing by twisting God's word the way he is. He's actually breaking that commandment badly. As we begin to look at this list of behaviors, don't, don't think of them as do's and don'ts. But, but they're just guardrails to guide us through life. Behaviors to love God, love others, and, and do it well. Experience all that God has. And, and then don't add to them. Be careful and don't make them more than what God intended. Because all of a sudden they become a burden. All of a sudden they become powerless. All of a sudden they become something that's heavy on us. And God never intended them to be heavy. Instead, he intended them to be life-giving and freedom-giving. So... Let's jump in, and let me ask you to grab a Bible. Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some right there in the seats beside you. Exodus chapter 20, and let's begin looking at what God gives as this list of behaviors to love him. How much you want to bet he won't get to verse 18? And to love others well. Page 59 of the Bibles there at your seat. Exodus chapter 20. Let me begin reading in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. And actually, let me just say to you, the Ten Commandments, you can find throughout the Bible, two places where they're listed in their entirety. One is Exodus 20. Now, keep in mind, I've already read, and I've already mentioned it again, that I've read Romans chapter 3, 20, that tells us the purpose of the law is to show us our sin. Now, do you think David Ashcraft, the way he set this up, is going to let God's law fly the way it really needs to fly in order to convict people of their sin and unbelief so that they're brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, because you preach the law and then you preach the gospel. Because these Ten Commandments, just when I read them, I condemned everybody, myself included. So what's our hope? Our hope is that Christ has kept all these perfectly for us. And all of our sins and our transgressions where we have have broken these commandments, um, the punishment that we deserved was laid on Christ. And that he has suffered in our place on the cross for our sins. And we're to believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. The law and the gospel need to be preached together. Do you think that's what's going to happen the way Ashcraft has set this up? He's not going to preach the law lawfully because he hasn't done so yet. 20 and others in the book of Deuteronomy. We'll look at it as it's given in Exodus chapter 20. Beginning verse 1, then God gave the people all of these instructions. God says, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. So he just begins by reminding the people, look, I'm the one that sets you free. 
in the first place. I'm the one that gave you your freedom in the first place. And so these aren't here to abuse you. These are here to protect you. These are here to guide you, direct you. Number one, first command he gives, verse three, you must not have any other God but me. You must not have any other God but me. In other words, honor God as God. And all that you do, put me first, God says. And all that you think and all that you say and all that you do, think about me first. Make sure in your life, God says, I come first. And whenever there's a choice to be made, always put God first. Make him your number one pick. God says you must not have any other God but me. What this means is that God is instructing every man, every woman, every child on the face of the earth to honor him as God, as supreme, to affirm his existence, to acknowledge his sovereignty, to obey his directives, to give him the affections of your heart. He's saying don't worship the sun, don't worship the moon, don't worship the stars, don't worship Allah, don't worship Buddha, don't worship Lenin or Mao, I mean don't worship money. Don't worship the applause of other people. Most of all, don't worship yourself. It's not about you. God says... And... Yeah, he's right in describing all the things you shouldn't worship. Um, but uh, how many of you are guilty of worshiping those things? Everybody listening to me is guilty of having an idol. Every one of us is guilty of this in breaking God's commandment here. Christ is the only solution is the only hope we have, him and him crucified for our sins. Will Ashcraft get to that? I don't know. Let's find out together. Instead, he says, put him first. Honor him as God and God alone. Put God first. If we took the Ten Commandments, you'd really break them down into two parts. Love God, love others. Force commands, first four commandments are really all about loving God. And what God is saying is he wants all of you. He doesn't want just part of you. Or... Yeah, that's right. And how many of you have given all of you to God? Not one of you has. So you stand condemned by God's law. You're guilty of breaking it already. Part of me. He wants all of me, all of you. And again, God is talking to people that have just been released from slavery. They've never been free before. God's saying, okay, you're free, but you're not living free. You're abusing one another, you're stealing, you're lying, you're committing adultery, you're killing one another. And if all of us would be honest, would say life really isn't all that good. God says, why are you doing that? And so he says, I want you to experience life to the full. And he says, if you're going to do that, you need to put me first. I need to be number one in your lives. And it's almost like... Yeah, notice he added to uh, Exodus there, things that are not there. God calls all of these people together. He's like a dad. And the dad realizes things in the household, things at home are not going well. And so he's going to call a family meeting. So dad gets everybody together in the den, sits everybody down on the couch and says, look, this is how we're going to do life going forward because it's not going well right now. And so God gets all of these people together for this family meeting. He says, first things first. And the very first thing he says is there's one God and I'm him and you're not. I'm God and you're not God and and they're not God. Nobody else is God. God says, I am the only one that's God and and you can't live free until you finally realize that, that there's only one God and it's not you. And you're not the center of the universe and you're not the most important person. And the reason why you're miserable is because you've got yourself set up as the center of the universe, the ruler of the world and and you're making yourself miserable. It's not gonna work. It's almost like if we were to kind of set life up, we would draw a circle in the middle of the floor and then we would put a name in the middle and it would be our name. It would be my name. And it would be David and the rest of the world orbits around me. And the rest of the world kind of answers to me. And I sit on my throne and, and the cool thing is sometimes would be if God could just be my butler. 
And if I want power, if I want fame, if I want whatever I happen to want that I just talk to God, we'll call that prayer. God, this is what I want. I'll tell you what I want. You be my butler. You get it for me. And whatever I need, you get for me because I'm the center of the universe. And God says, that's not the way it is. God says, yeah, draw a circle in the middle of the floor, put a name in it. But he said, the name is God. He says, I'm the one on the name in the middle of the floor. It's not all about you. You're not the center of the universe. Now, in their day, as God was having this family meeting, there were lots of other gods. They would worship themselves, but there were lots of other gods. And, and, and interesting, they would actually have names for their gods. And so there would be the name for the god or goddess of sex. There would be a name for the god of fame or the god of pleasure, the god of comfort or the goddess of fertility. Whatever it was, they named all of their gods. And what's fascinating to me is thousands of years later, we don't do that anymore. We think, oh, that's primitive. We're not going to name gods for all these things. But we still worship the very same things. We just don't name them. And so we still chase after power. We still chase after fame. We still chase after the applause of others. And we're still looking for fertility and sex and power and promotion. But we just don't name them. And and God says, you can't do that. You're going to do that and life is going to be miserable. You're going to do that and and you're going to be miserable with what's going on. And no, God says, one God, one God only, he's it. Now, Jesus actually talked about kind of the same things. Jesus, as he looked at this, kind of said the very same thing. And some of the harshest statements that Jesus ever made were all about making God number one in our lives. Let me kind of three different passages I want us to look at. Matthew chapter 6. It's page 737 in the Bibles there at your seats. Matthew chapter 7. Actually, chapter 6, page 737. Matthew chapter 6, page 737. Bible's there at your seats, page 737. Jesus is talking and he just says, you've got to make God number one. There's nothing else that can compete with God as number one in your life. Matthew chapter 6, he talks about one of the things that competes with God more than anything, and that's just money. Look at verse 19, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will also be. And Jesus just says, look, you can tell what's number one in your life by the things that you're possessing, by the things that you're treasuring in your life. And then he goes on in verse 24 and he says this, no one, no one can serve two masters for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God says you can't, Jesus says you can't do it. It's one or the other. He's not saying money's bad. He just says you can't make that number one in your life. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't be a half-hearted follower of God. Beware of conflicting loyalties. Don't just give lip service to God. Don't just show up on the... Yeah, but if you are honest, every single day that goes by, you're guilty of having conflicting loyalties. This is why you sin. The weekends and sing to God and talk about God, but then go off and kind of live differently the rest of the week. And the proof of kind of who's number one in your life is where you spend your time and where you spend all your energy and where you give all your resources and where you put your treasure is. Jesus says, that's where your heart is. That's what's number one in your life. And so he says, it's got to be God. It can't be your job. He says, it's God and it's not your marriage. It's God and it's not your children. It's God and it's not even your friends. It's God. It's not even your church. It's not that. It's, it's got to be God. We can't serve two masters, Jesus says. And so, so God says, serve me. He's number one. Now, another incredibly harsh statement that Jesus actually makes. Luke chapter 14. Maybe one of the most confusing statements that God, that Jesus himself makes about life. Luke chapter 14 is page 797. 
797 in the Bible's there at your seats. Luke chapter 14, Jesus is talking, and this passage, this quote, this comment from Jesus has caused all kinds of confusion. It really is all about who's number one in our lives. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Whoa. A little harsh, Jesus. A little dramatic there, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, nothing else can be in the number one spot. There's no room for anything else less than God in that number one spot. And it's almost like he's saying, if you're not going to honor God as God, then don't even bother. But make sure that God is number one. Another time Jesus is talking, Revelation chapter 3. Back of your Bibles, page 951. Revelation chapter 3. Back of your Bibles, page 951. And this passage actually describes a, a particular church. And he's describing this church and saying, you used to be focused on God. He used to be number one in your lives. Now he's not anymore. And um, so let me begin reading verse 14. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. In other words, this is what Jesus says. Verse 15. I know all the things you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing, and you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He goes on and he describes the things that have taken the place of God as number one in the lives of these people. And Jesus is saying, don't don't put anything else up there besides God as being number one. And So can I just stop and say, you know what, if I have a concern for us, um, it's just that I, I don't know if God is always number one in our lives. I do. I know for a fact he's not number one in our lives. We're guilty of breaking this commandment daily. So what are we to do? Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The answer is repentance and confessing our sins and being forgiven by what Christ has done for us on the cross, because Christ has died for every one of our failings to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. This is the good news. Let's see if David connects the two. I mean, so he's spending a lot of time talking about um, commandment number one and pointing out all the different ways in which it manifests. And he's doing a fine job here at preaching the law, but the way he set it up is these are guardrails so that you can experience life to the fullest. So if the solution is, well, I haven't been loving God with all of my heart, well, the solution then is just pull myself up by my bootstraps and just try harder. Yeah, I don't think so. And the reason why I say that is because I know for myself, this is a constant struggle. I wish that this was a one-time decision. I wish that we could say, okay, today, all of us, let's say God is number one in our lives. We'll be done. We'll be set for life. Everything is going to be good. We never have to think about this again. God will always be number one in our life, but it doesn't work that way. We make a one-time commitment. We say, God, I'm going to put you number one in my life. But, But the problem is it's a living, active relationship we have with God. And so we can yank him off the throne. We can take him out of that number one spot anytime that we want. And so for me... It's a constant struggle. For me, it's a challenge. 
because I'm always trying to yank him off of the number one spot. I'm trying to set myself up there again. And so it's a daily thing for me where I'm constantly, I'm just saying, okay, God, I'll get out of the way and you be number one again. Sometimes it's more than daily. Sometimes it happens hourly. There are times that it happens minute by minute. And Jesus just says, make sure that God is number one because everything else out of your life is going to flow from this. And if we want to experience life to the full, if we want to experience life to the max, then we've got to have God as number one in our lives. And Then none of us will ever experience life to the full and the max, now will we? C.S. Lewis actually kind of says an interesting thing. He says, think about this relationship with God and God wanting to be number one in our lives as a marriage. And he says, how many of us would go into a marriage commitment and how many of us would say to our spouse or have our spouse say to us, you know what, I'm in love with you, I love you, I'm committed to this relationship, you just need to know there's actually going to be a couple more people involved as well. You're still important to me and you're still a high priority for me, but I'm going to have several other people as well. You just need to kind of know that. So how many of you men... If your wife would come to you and say, I love you, you know, it's an amazing relationship that we have, but, but there's going to be two or three other men as well. There might even be more than that, but there'll be a few other men in my life. You just need to know that, but you're still high priority for me. You're important to me. Or how many of you as women would say, I'd be okay if my husband came to me and said, okay, you know, I love you, but, but there's just going to be other women as well. And you're still a real high priority, but there's others as well. And, and C.S. Lewis says, none of us are going to do that. None of us are going to put up with that kind of relationship. And you, you could still be married, but it's going to be a lousy marriage. And you're going to be miserable. And, and it's like God is saying, look, it's like we're married, and I want to be number one in your life, and I want you to be committed to me. And, and God says, no other running around with other people, no sleeping in anybody else's bed. I want you to be devoted, committed to me, and me alone if this thing is going to work. And so... And by the way, comparing it to a marriage is exactly how God does this. The problem is, is that uh, when we sin and worship things other than God, well, Scripture also describes that not as just merely adultery, but as prostitution. Yeah, that's how God describes the sin of idolatry throughout the Old Testament. It says, number one, number one, and everything else flows from this. Now, if you're like me, you kind of say, okay, but why does God have to be number one? Why can't I be number one? Why can't something else be number one? Why can't we move it around sometimes? Why can't we change it up sometimes? And so for me, I kind of struggle and think about that. And yet what God says is, look, if we will put him number one in our lives, he will make sure that we never, ever regret it. If we'll go ahead and put number one in our lives, God is number one, then he says, I'll make sure you never regret the fact that you're number one. God says, honor me. Because if you don't put me number one in your life, then you're going to be disappointed. God says, put me number one because other gods are going to let you down. God God says, whenever you're tempted to put something else or someone else in that number one spot, you will be disappointed. You will have regrets. You will be hurt in life. And, And in the end, it's only God that can come through for you. And so he says, just make sure I'm number one. And I know this to be true. Because in my role as as being part of LCBC, I get to hear your stories all the time. And a lot of the stories are amazingly good. A lot of the stories are amazingly tragic. And so I listen to stories all the time. And I listen to women who say, you know what? Um, For me, they say my marriage is everything. For me, my marriage is kind of my God. And and so I listen to women who say I gave my life, my All of my energy to my marriage, to my family, had the highest attention, affection I could possibly give. It's never going to fail, they would say. And 
and my marriage is always going to come through for me. And, and that was until finally he goes off on a business trip, comes back and says, you know what? I, I don't think I love you anymore. And I don't think I want to be married anymore. I don't even want to be the father of our children anymore. And I listen to story after story of women that are just crushed, counted on him always being there. He'd been number one. And God says, anything you put number one besides God, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be crushed. All right, listen to men and women talk about kind of their careers. And, and you could say maybe their careers are their gods because their whole lives were centered around focusing around their careers. And, and they never minded it because it was kind of their ticket to having their ego fulfilled. And it was their ticket to having a great retirement. And it was their ticket to just kind of having self-esteem be enhanced and built up and, and financial security. So never minded it. And they just kind of ordered their whole life around their career. Figured it's always going to be there. It's going to take care of them the rest of their lives. And, and then all of a sudden, their position is eliminated from the company and never dreamed that that kind of thing would happen. And, and he or she sacrificed their marriage for it. They, they sacrificed their health, their kids for it. And, and career had been number one in their lives. And all of a sudden, it's gone. And God says, anything else you put up there other than him, you're going to be disappointed. And I listen to those stories all the time. Lives that are shattered when, when people were counting on something else other than God to come through for them and didn't. And the problem is promises are broken and the problem is covenants are violated. And sometimes projections are wrong and plans go awry. And, and one by one, people come to the painful reality that parents can't always come through for you and spouses can't always come through for you and children don't always come through for you. Friends don't always come through for you until we finally say, who can I count on in this life? Who can I count on to kind of help me? And God says, Put me number one. God says, you can count on me. God says, you can count on him and nobody. Yeah, um, actually, that's not exactly how that works. You need to repent and be forgiven. You're skipping the cross. You're skipping forgiveness of sins. Nobody else can you count on? He says, I will not let you down. And See, what I know is some of you have some great things set up there in that number one position. You kind of place them as your God, but they're not going to come through for you. Probably the most critical time of your life. Because only God speaks. Only God watches. Only God listens. Only God cares. Only God has the power to touch a life. And only God has the power to meet a need. And only God has the power to alter an attitude. And so don't waste your time putting somebody else in the number one spot. Because you're going to end up with a life where you're just miserable. And it's not going to come through for you. And So again, if you're like me... Um, I step back and I go, okay, God, you're saying be number one. And for me, I constantly have to go back and say, okay, God, I'm sorry. I've somehow yanked you off of that number one spot. And maybe for you, kind of the process and all of this and where it starts for you today is to say, okay, God, I, I, I want to put you as number one. But as you're talking to God, you say, I don't even feel like I deserve you being number one. I don't even deserve you and being able to count on you because I've let you down, God, so many times. And I know that's how it works in my life. Where I say, God, I've messed up and kind of disappointed you so many times. Oh, please bring the gospel here now. Uh, you're talking about deserve. We don't deserve it. It's God's grace and mercy through the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. You got to preach that here. I don't even know if I could possibly put you number one in my life. And, and, and you just be honest with God and just talk to him. And see, the cool thing is because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. God's okay, we're getting a gospel nugget. Oh, I was afraid we weren't going to get that. Hopefully it'll be more than a nugget. Please be more than a nugget.
It says, in spite of all your messes, in spite of what you've done, you can still put me number one. No, that wasn't a gospel nugget. That wasn't the gospel. It wasn't in spite of everything you can make me number one. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for every time God has not been number one, which is pretty much every second of every day since you were conceived and until the day you draw your last breath in your life. And so maybe, like me, for you, the first step is just having a conversation with God right now and saying, okay, God, this is what you say. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you number one. But I would also tell you, it's not a one-time decision. It's a decision you have to continually make again and again and again. And so you say, okay, God. Repentance is daily. This is true. A, one, a daily decision to make God number one is not the same as repentance. God, I want to put you number one. But, but then the next thing I would say is the more you can find out about how God says to do life and how to do it well, the better off you're going to be. Find out what God wants you to do in, in order to experience the most out of life and then get about the business of doing it. And the more you find out about God, the more you're able to just kind of honor him and the more you kind of understand what it means to follow him. And, and that's when life gets real exciting. See, I can always tell when somebody really isn't following God because they'll say, you know what? Being a follower of Jesus, being a follower of God is kind of boring. I, I really want more excitement out of life. And if you say that, then I would say, obviously, you're not following God. Because as soon as you begin to follow God, you're going to start taking risks. Because what God's going to do is he's going to say, look, if you want to experience the most out of life, I need you to. So the sure sign that you've made God number one is that you start taking risks. Risk is not one of the fruits of repentance, and nor is it listed as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You go this way, and you're going to look around you, and everybody else is going this way. And you're going to say, well, wait a minute, God. Uh, everybody else is going this way. You're saying this way. And, and God says, yeah, if you want to experience the most out of life, I need you to go this direction. And, and you're going to have to take a risk. And you're going to say, do I go with what everybody else is doing? Everybody else is saying Or do I say, okay, I'm going to take it your way, God. I'm going to do it. But it's a risk. It's a big risk to take. And the more you know what directions God says to go, the more risk you begin to take. But that's when life gets exciting. That's when you begin to experience it to the full, to its maximum potential. Because you know what God says, and you decide, I'm going to do it no matter what. And you grit your teeth, and you say, you know what? I know everybody else is going a different direction, but God, I'm going to choose to go your direction. So you make a commitment to following him and obeying him. See, the dynamic of following God... If you think it's boring, then you're not following him. The whole dynamic of following God really comes at the point of obedience where you begin to obey him and you take risks and say, I know what you're saying. Nobody else is doing it that way. God, should I do it? Should I not? You decide to do it and all of a sudden, life gets incredibly exciting for you and you begin to follow him. Ruth and I, like I said, we're just in Houston this past week. And typically we go back to Texas when we're with family. We, we play a game, a Texas game with dominoes. It's called 42. And when I first learned how to play 42, it involves dominoes. And when you don't understand the rules, the way the game is played, you got freedom to do whatever you want, but it's not a lot of fun because you don't understand the rules. But the more you begin to understand the rules, the more you begin to understand what you can and can't do with your partner, what you can do against the opposition, all of a sudden the game gets real exciting. And you take risks and challenges, but you know that that's the way to play the game. And it gets real exciting for you as you play the game. And I would just say as we go through life, if you don't know anything about God, then you say, oh, it's, I don't know if it's that exciting or not. But once you begin to say, okay, God, I'm going to find out how you say to behave. I'm going to find out how you say to do life. And you take risk and you do what he says. All of a sudden it gets incredibly exciting. And you begin to experience life to the full, life to the max. And 
So God, number one, you may need to have a conversation like me. It's okay, God, I'm putting you number one. You may need to find out more and more about what he has to say about how to do life so you can experience it to the full. And then the third thing I would just say is be careful. Constantly watch for challengers. Challengers that are trying to knock God out of that number one place. Challengers that are trying to kind of step up. And and the way you can find out what's challenging God for that number one spot is just when you have free time, what are the thoughts that consume your mind? When you're working in the yard, when you're driving your car, when you're lying in bed, what are the thoughts that consume your mind? Whatever's consuming your mind, odds are that's number one in your life. And if it's anything other than God, then something is challenging God. And so you look for those things that are challenging God and, and you say, okay, I'm going to back off those challengers. And I'm going to make sure that God stays number one. So here's the deal. God says, look, we can have an incredible, incredible life. And he says, but it's not going to happen until he's number one. And everything else is going to flow from that. So- Which, by the way, the way he set this up is not at all how the scripture lays it out. So over the next several weeks, we're going to look at this kind of list of behaviors that God has for each of us. And, and my hope for us, for every one of us that are part of LCBC, is that we can experience life to the full, life to the max. And, and so my hope is that each and every one of us today, and, and what I want to do is actually pray for us, pray for you, and pray for me. Just say, okay, God, um, we're going to put you number one in our lives. And, um, and then we're going to take risks, and we're going to choose to follow you. Because what happens is as we begin to take risk, as we put him number one and we begin to take risk to just follow him and obey him, then all of a sudden life gets incredibly exciting. And at some point, I hope we can all look back at our lives and say, wow, that was an amazing journey that God took me on. Incredible life. I lived it to the full. I did everything. I really lived my life. And I hope that's all of our experiences. So I want to pray today for you and for me that we'll have that experience. I hope that we'll choose to live a life without regrets where, where we don't look back and say, man, I wish. Too late. We've all sinned and have regrets. We need a savior. We need to be forgiven. Wish I wish I'd have chosen to put God number one. I wish that I had chosen to follow God. So pray with me. No, you don't get to pray. Not for us. Wow. That was in the truest sense of the concept. All law, no gospel. He condemned everybody there. And you and I all know that we do not keep this commandment even close to perfectly. And yet the carrots being held out, oh, you can live life to the full, just apply these behaviors and commit to them when we all know that we're guilty of breaking them so often and so badly that there's, there was no hope there. Just try harder, resolve to push through it, See, this is um, bad hermeneutics because it doesn't properly distinguish between law and gospel. That was all law, and it condemned everybody. And rather than hearing that Christ bled and died for all of your idolatry, we heard, you'll know that you're doing this when you become a risk taker. This is truly, truly tragic. Pray for the folks at LCBC. We have the blind leading the blind, people who want to be instructors in the law who do not even understand what the law demands, thinking that this is the mission statement for the church when the mission statement is make disciples, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. What would you think? (laughs) 
Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. And in there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.